16. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. That is where we are. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 2. And let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. <clears throat> and Father, we thank you that you are our refuge, our shield, as we just sang of, based out of Psalm 121. And indeed, Lord, we have seen that time and time again uh, in our lives. Many could testify, even this week, of how you've been a refuge and a shield. Lord, we've seen it globally, as Ruslan shared. And I know there are many, many stories of believers uh, and how they have been protected and shielded. And yet we also know of some very tragic stories there. Father, as we look to you and as we journey through Nehemiah, we're reminded that you are the God of the heavens. You are the one who sits and observes all things, whether we're from Brazil, Budapest, Ukraine, or Speedway. You are in charge, and you oversee all, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're in uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. And just a little bit of review as we go to this, and, and just the timetable, which is so vital here as we look at this, is again in 586 B.C., if we could show that on the slide, that'd be great. 586, the temple is destroyed. The Babylonians, a world empire at the time, came in and they, would, they took the locals and deported them. They moved people groups around to bring instability. That's how they controlled. They felt that was the best way to control the land. <clears throat> and so in 586, the temple's destroyed. It's, it's a horrible time in the history of Israel. It's still observed today. And as you can see, in God's providence, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians, and the foreign policy of the Persians was vastly different. They wanted the people groups to return. They encouraged worship of the foreign gods. And so the temple is rebuilt, as you can see at that time frame, 516. It was 538, 539 when they returned, and it took them approximately 20 years to build. And now we're at the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as we remember in chapter 1, he hears that the walls are in ruins. He, he prays to the Lord, and as we looked at last week, four months he prayed before he approached the king. He is the cupbearer, that is Nehemiah. So he had direct access to the king, and he will ask for permission to return, and that is what he does. And so what you're going to see today is Nehemiah coming back to the land. As I read this, I was reminded years ago when I was in high school, my mom was at a conference and she said, okay, you'll make the homemade pizza. Now, first of all, why didn't we buy pizza? I don't know. But we, the chef board RD, you know, the, the box, you're going to make pizza. And, and mom laid out all the instructions and I thought, mm, I got that, mom. I've seen you make it. No problem. So I just jumped right in. I didn't take the chance to read the recipe. And mom's recipe entailed browning hamburger and we put hamburger and pepperoni and cheese on it. What I didn't realize is that you're supposed to drain the hamburger, and that pizza was just floating when we pulled it out of the oven. The dog wouldn't even eat it. And Nehemiah is vastly different because he follows the directions. He does his homework, and you're going to see that. But the first thing we note as he re comes to this territory, this region, it says in verse 9 of chapter 2, Then I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, 
This is this region where Jerusalem was located. It's one of the provinces of the Persian Empire. And I presented to them, that is these governors, the letters from the king. And remember, this is one of the things he requested from the king. I'm going to need letters. Why? Because we know all the way back in Ezra 4 that the local yokels didn't want the Jews to build the wall. They didn't want the city fortified. Right? And so he says, I need letters from the king. And the king had sent with me, watch this, I love this. Not only did he send letters, the king sent officers of the army and horsemen. We got an entourage that has rolled into town. This is huge. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servants heard all of this, they were very displeased that someone had come to seek benefit for the Israelites. Let's look at this. This is letter A of your notes if you're following around. But here we have uh, this entourage that comes. They have, they're there to not only provide protection and ensure that the king's edict is carried forth, but it's also to validate Nehemiah. I mean, after all, he's just a cupbearer. Who are you? All right, we're the governors of the region, as we can see. In fact, we see two men, and they will be mentioned several times in the book of Nehemiah. They have enormous influence. In fact, let me just show you just a map so we can see where we are. Again, just to follow through. Oh, I'm so sorry. We are, the first red, that is the red to the right, is the region of Persia, this, the capital, Susa. We're traveling to Jerusalem. This is 800, mm, 850 approximately miles. It will take Nehemiah two months. It's four months that he prayed, two months before he arrives. So six months in this process, and he meets these two fellows. Sambalat, we're told, is a Horonite. Now you go, oh, I don't know what that is. All right, let me fill some things in that are so important to realize. Sambalat's name is the, from the Babylonian god Sin, which is the moon god, the moon god who gives life. I just love it. How uh, ironic that your name means that, Sambalat, because that is vastly what you are not. Horonite means he's most likely from the tribe of Moab, now, just put that in your back burner for a minute because Tobiah, we're going to see, is an Ammonite. We also know something else from archaeology. Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. And you remember the Samaritans? We meet them in the New Testament, but this is the first time they come on the scene. The Samaritans are half-breeds. They're Jews that stayed. They married the locals, and these are their descendants. The Samaritans are very unfriendly to the Jews, and there's a whole history between this period and the New Testament period, but the idea, by the time you reach the New Testament, that there is a good Samaritan? Don't think so. They were disdained by the Jews. The Jews were disdained by the Samaritans. There was no love between these two groups, and Sambalat is the leader of the Samaritans during this time frame. Tobiah is an Ammonite. The text tells us this. He too is a governor, though it mentions he's a servant. Some scholars think it's a bit pejorative that they're mentioning this, but nonetheless, you have Ammonites and Moabites. Now, where did these tribes come from? These parasites, Moabites and Moabites, right? They were the descendants of Lot. Remember the ancestral relationship he had with his two daughters? Uh, mentioned in Genesis 19. These are the descendants and they are constantly seen as the foes of Israel. 
the Moabites and the Ammonites. You remember they were very hostile to the Israelites when they came back to the land. And when we get to Deuteronomy 23, listen to this, as far as the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. They're barred. You can't get them to the temple. And it says to the 10th generation, in fact, any descendant. And the text goes on, for they did not meet you with food and water on the way you came from Egypt. And it talks how they hired Balaam. Remember that false prophet. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam, and he changed the curse to a blessing. For the Lord your God loves you. You must not seek peace and prosperity for them, the Ammonites or the Moabites, through all the ages to come. We get to Nehemiah 13, it's a serious problem because they've married in to the Moabite and the Ammonite tribes. And Nehemiah's got to deal with that reform. And here they are, <laughs> this constant drip in the history of Israel, this constant enemy that, that has been. In other words, this isn't some foreign group of people like the Babylonians, the Persians. These are relatives. This is their cousins from the descendant of Lot that have created enormous problems for Israel. And they are, once again, creating problems here. <laughs> Don't miss this. And did you see what their problem was? The problem isn't rebuilding the wall. Look at the text. Look what it says in verse 10. They are displeased that someone has come to seek benefit for Israel. They're upset that anyone would show favor to the Jews. That's the bottom line. It's not about the walls. I, I, the, the irony here is they're, they're looking at this from a human perspective that some human is showing a favor, but who is showing favor? God. We saw it in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 2. We're going to see it again here in the text. Lamentations 3. The Lord is good to those who trust in Him, those who seek Him. And Sambalat and Tobiah, the, these tribes, local tribes, were told in the text they're very displeased. That same term is used of Jonah when the Ninevites repent. It can be translated becoming evil. Wow. The hostility to God's people should not surprise us. <laughs> Jesus said it in John chapter 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I am testifying about it. Its deeds are evil. In other words, the Lord said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. They hate God. And you see here, there's no rationale for this. What is a threat to you if Jerusalem builds a walls? Sambalat, you got your empire to the north. Tobiah, yours is over to the east. Why does this matter? Because ultimately, it's God's people. And that's where the hatred lies. Right? And you see this. And, and I love this. You know, in the midst of this where you, you see the, the world hating God's people, there is good news. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? want. What does the text say? You prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. Now think about that for a minute. As a follower of Jesus, what we need is a table in the presence of our enemy. What we need is to have life determined not by the presence of the enemy, but by the presence of the Lord. One scholar writes, we need a time and a place to be reassured of the Lord's presence, refreshed with his promises, reminded of his victory, rearmed with his commands, and renewed by his spirit. 
that, that's like the good shepherd, isn't it? Ah, let me, let me put a feast right here in front of your enemies as I sit down and I have baklava with you, right? <laughs> I love it. Without the table of the Lord, we shall soon forget how to identify the real enemies with whom we have to deal with. Without the table of the Lord, we shall soon lack the comfort needed to sustain us in the conflict. And I would argue without the table of the Lord, we shall not have the courage or the wisdom to love our enemies or even to recognize them as persons from whom Christ died. That's the table that's been prepared before our enemies. And as we shall see, Nehemiah is not rattled by Sambalat or Tobiah. Oh, it's not just because he has the king's backing, as we're going to see. It's because he has the Lord, the God of the heavens, backing him. And who are you, Sambalat? In fact, let's look at verse 11. This is where it gets good. Watch this. All right, here we go. So I came to Jerusalem. Da, 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 da. Jerusalem, right? The music's playing. When I had been there for three days. Now, why three? We don't know. Three is a significant number in Scripture. Uh, the text just doesn't tell us. It often is seen, though, three is a, is a sign of completion. But it says, I got up during the night. He pulls an all-nighter, you college students. Watch this. I got up during the night along with a few men who were with me. I didn't tell anyone about my God who was putting in my heart to do this for Jerusalem. There were no animals with me except for the one I was riding. I proceeded through the valley gate by night in the direction of the well of the dragons and the dung gate, and I was inspecting the walls of Jerusalem that had been breached and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Remember, that's what he brought up to Artaxerxes the king. Our city lays in ruins. The gates have been burnt. And he looks at this, and I passed Oh, to the gate of the well in the king's pool where there was insufficient space for my animal to pass. I mean, th this is a daunting uh, task. The damage is huge. It's, it's laid in rubble for 150 years. And we know the walls before stood at 15 to 20 feet, three to four feet thick. I mean, and the Babylonians did a, a wonderful job of destroying it. <laughs> you can still see some of the destruction even today and some of the archaeological digging in Jerusalem. And so it says, I continued on the valley during the night, inspecting the wall. Then I turned and came to the valley gate and so returned. He's gone a full circle. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had been doing. For up to this point, I had not told any of the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or the rest of the workers. Interesting, the enemy knew, but the locals didn't know yet, right? Then I said to them, you see the problem that we have in Jerusalem. It's desolate and its gates are burned. And we'll look at this in a second. But let's go back and look at this evaluation that transpires. Again, it's been six months. And I don't know about you, if you've been praying for something for four months, you get an answer to prayer, you, you, you know, you've made that track for two months, and now you've arrived. Uh, the last thing I'm going to do is sit quiet for three days, Right? I mean, that's like saying you're confined to the hotel on your tour. Thank you for arriving in, I don't know, in Speedway. And now you're going to sit in a hotel for three days, right? That's a real bummer. Where, I don't know where Bob's at, but right, Bob? So there you are. <clears throat> and he doesn't rush into action. He's assessing the situation. One commentator writes, above and beyond his sound tactics, however, was the conviction that basically the project was not his. It is the Lord's. 
Why the secrecy? I'll give you several reasons. This is, thus saith the Lord, it's Hoffman's theory, but let me give you a few. I think number one, we know opposition is there. <laughs> We've already met Sambalat and Tobiah. That's just two. We're gonna meet a third in a minute. And, and so we know, and, and we know that in Ezra 4, the, the Artaxerxes had issued an edict that the wall had to stop. So we know there's hostility. We're also going to see later on that, and rightly so, Nehemiah is very cautious to trust those in Jerusalem. Even his own people, he will find, they'll want to betray him. And Tobiah is actually related. We'll get to this, to the priestly family. It's all intertwined. He's very careful assessing the situation. He makes sure that his own homework is done. He's heard all the tells. He's estimated what it's going to cost. We've seen that, what materials he'll need. But he spent some time assessing the situation. There's no doubt. And I would argue he needed time with the Lord. As he prayed through that and looked through this, I had a great professor and friend, Howard Hendricks, who taught at Dallas Seminary. He said, you want to arrive before any student does, and you walk through the, the seats, and you pray over your classroom before that first student arrives. That's, I think, what Nehemiah is doing. Well, there's the valley gate. There's the dung gate. There's the water gate. No, uh, you know, uh, he's going through, and he's praying through all of this, right? Chuck Swindoll writes, the anvil upon which God molds his leaders is silence and solitude. For it's during these interludes that God forges the qualities, thoughts, and characters of a true leader. And I love, he even says in that, notice early on as he starts this journey in verse 12, he says, my God has laid this on my heart. He recognizes this is God's project. This is not mine. I'm not, he's very careful not to run ahead of the Lord. Paul David Tripp makes this comment in his book on leadership that God didn't call us because we are able, but because he is. God doesn't need us, I hate to tell you. He has seen fit in his grace to use us, but who are we before an almighty God, right? And who is Nehemiah? Now, I want you to see something else here as we look at this map, because this is so significant. Notice where Sambalat is. He is on the north side of the province of Yehud. This is another term for Judah. These are the Persian provinces. Tobiah is going to be on the right. Later we'll meet Geshem here at the end of the text. He's on the south. In other words, they're entirely surrounded by enemies. And so Nehemiah is doing his homework. He knows. And the path that he takes is most likely he goes around the southern part, up through around the north and back. Why? Because the southern part, I would argue, is the most vulnerable. It's where the Babylonians attacked. It's where the most damage was done. It's also the source of water, the Gihon Spring. And so all of this, it's so important that he understands that. So he starts and he moves down around the southern part of the old city of David, Jerusalem, up through the north, around the Temple Mount area, and back to the Valley Gate, which is mentioned twice in the text. Nehemiah, again, that, that path is debated. The, the point is, the destruction is enormous. And, and he knows this, and he's extremely cautious in the path that he takes. Now, look at 17 and 18. We read a part of this. He says, you know the problem, 
it's kind of a no-brainer. Then he says, come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and, and so that the reproach will not continue. Then I related to them how the good hand of my God was on me. That was mentioned earlier in chapter 2. It's mentioned in Ezra. He said, God's hand is on me. And what the king had said, that's Artaxerxes. And they replied, well, let's get going. Let's rebuild. Don't you love it? Uh, it's, yes, let's move. Nehemiah makes, look what he says here to the people. After pulling an all-nighter, he relates to them two things. He, he recognizes there's a seriousness to the problem. The walls are in disarray, the gates. And he says, you need to rejoin me. Three times he uses the first person plural. He identifies with the people. <laughs> I love that. He identifies with the problem. We saw that in chapter one in his prayer. And he identifies with the solution. This is what we need to do. It's great leadership, right? You're not passing the buck on anybody else. You louses, where were you these last 150 years? Well, you've been here since 538. Why haven't you rebuilt these walls? <laughs> no. No, he says, we got a problem. We have a problem. We need to do this. And what is the major reason or the reason Nehemiah wants these walls rebuilt? It's found in Psalm 48. Psalm 48, the Lord is great and certainly worthy of praise in the city of our God, Jerusalem, his holy hill. It is lofty and pleasing to look at a source of joy to the whole earth. Mount Zion resembles the peaks of Zephon. It is the city of the great king. God is in his fortress. He reveals himself as the defender. These broken walls tarnish God's reputation. This is what drives Nehemiah. What drives you, right? What drives me in ministry or in things that we do? Is it so God will be exalted? For Nehemiah, that's exactly where he is. And he points first to the Lord's favor as the cause for all that is transpiring. I love the line. Look at this text. Look at verse 17 again. He says, come on, let's rebuild. And he says, I want to relate to them how the good hand of my God is on me. It's a warning about uh, ownership in ministry, isn't it? When we launched this church and we started with a board of eight elders, now it's nine, one of the things we discussed at length was this is not our ministry, it's the Lord's. <laughs> because a real danger in ministry, especially if you're establishing a new church, is to say, ah, look what God's allowed me to do. And all of a sudden, you got your fingers wrapped around it really tight. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you heard of this? It's a type of cognitive bias in which people believe they are smarter and more capable than they really are. The, again, as I said earlier, the Lord does not need us. He does not need Community Bible Fellowship. He doesn't need any church or any Christian institution. And the danger with many is they start to believe their own press and they think they're the cat's meow. That is a real danger, isn't it? The, the Lord will see his name exalted and he will not share stage with anyone or anything. And so falling into the trap of thinking this isn't the Lord's will result in arrogance, an unapproachable attitude, and a controlling spirit. There's no doubt. And it's a warning to all of us. When I would take groups to Israel, 
the very first day as we take that bus from Tel Aviv airport to Jerusalem, we read this text from Deuteronomy 6. Because you look out the bus, and yes, there's some beautiful spots of Israel, but you go, why did, why did he pick this parcel of land? There's a slice in Hawaii would have been a lot better, right? <laughs> really? Deuteronomy 6 is clear. Then when the Lord your God brings you to the land he promised your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land with large, fine cities you did not build, houses filled with choice things you did not accumulate, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, and that you eat your fill, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Be careful. As you see all this, this is all the Lord. And Nehemiah, as he launches this ministry in rebuilding and, and calling the people together, he says, this is the Lord. And you're going to see it time and time again in this book. It even closes with Nehemiah praying, saying, Lord, may you not forget what you've done in and through me. And, and that's what he's reminding the people. And that's why he says, look what it says in the text. It is a good project. Now that's interesting. That term is loaded because in Nehemiah, good is used of the law in chapter 9, verse 13. It's used of the spirit who instructed the Israelites in chapter 9, verse 20. It's used of the possessions that God gave the Israelites that it was good. That's mentioned in Nehemiah 9 and the prosperity that occurred during the reign of the kings. In other words, this goodness is anything that stems from God's hand right? And might we add, it is always undeserved. It's abundant and truly miraculous. It's good. <laughs> no wonder Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God, because all of this flows from him. And Nehemiah says, look, read the text again. I related how the, the good hand of my God was on me. Who am I? Who are you that God would allow us to do this? I mean, he's waited 150 years. Who are we? Right? And he says, and the king, and then he says, get going, let's rebuild. So we readied ourselves, and I, again, I love this, the good project. This is his work. This is what we're doing for the Lord. And I love it. Well, look at verses 19 and 20, because we're not done with dear old Sambalat and Tobiah. Verse 19, here they come again, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. Again, those are repeated, I think, to remind us, these are enemies of the people. God's people. And now we have another. It's Geshem, the Arab, which I told you is in the southern part. So now they're pretty much surrounded, and later we're going to see Ashdod is against Israel, and they truly are surrounded by enemies. And notice what happens. When they heard all this, they derided us and expressed contempt towards us. They said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? <laughs> we all know what that means. And I responded to them, and watch this. If you don't get anything else, watch Nehemiah's response. It's dynamite. He says, the God of heaven will prosper us. We, his servants, will start the rebuilding, but you have no just or ancient right on Jerusalem. <laughs> well, first thing you see, again, is that the, the city is surrounded by the enemies, and this time the enemies are vocal. They're slanderous. They're confrontational. They impugn the motives and they're accusatory, that is, they accuse them of treason. God's activity will draw out the enemy, will it not? And that's the case here. 
While the situation may seem out of control, Nehemiah operates under the control of the Spirit. You know, there's no retaliation. If I was him, I'd say, all right, guards, arrest them. <laughs> there's none of that. Notice how he responds in three ways. First, he praises God, right? He evokes the name of the Lord, the one who is above all. In fact, the, the, he says this is the one who causes us to prosper is the very prayer he made back in chapter one. That the Lord prosper us as we seek to rebuild, verse 11 of chapter one. It's the same term, term used of David when he says to Solomon, you're gonna build a temple and God will prosper you in it. It's the same term used of Psalm 1, the righteous man or woman who bask in the presence of the Lord is told they will prosper. And so he praises the Lord. Second thing he does is he declares allegiance to the Lord. We are servants of God. In other words, we are going to obey and we are going to rebuild. So whether you like it or not, that's our role. Thank you very much. And the third is that he claims the promises of God. So he praises the Lord, he declares his allegiance to the Lord, and he claims the promises of the Lord. What's the promises? We are the people who have inherited Jerusalem. This is David's city. It's God's city, Psalm 46, Psalm 122. This is the city he has promised. One scholar states, Nehemiah's reply does not even bother to refute the disloyalty charge. I'm not even, it's not even worthy of response on the part of Nehemiah. No, don't throw your pearls before a swine. Instead, he goes to the heart of the matter. Those who maintain the cause of God will prosper. Don't you love it? <laughs> and that leaves us with three things there, an application there in your notes. First of all, faced with enormous walls, and I use that metaphorically, whether it's relationships that seem ir irreparable, perhaps it's a a project. We serve a God who does not only care deeply, but he's capable and willing to bring about change for his glory. Nehemiah knew that. Verse 12, verse 18, verse 20, all three times he refers to the Lord. So I was thinking, how, how are we to face obstacles based on what we see in chapter 2, verses 9 through 20? And so I've given you an acronym, it's WALL. <laughs> so here you go. The W is welcome the Lord. In other words, recognize who he is. I mean, think about Jeremiah 32. Is anything too hard for you? That relationship that's broken, a wayward child, a job that's just so difficult, is anything too hard for the Lord? <laughs> or Matthew 19, with all things, all things are possible with God. And so first, we welcome the Lord. Secondly, we act according to the Lord's will. We obey. Nehemiah, I am sure, in those four months, there had to be a point in his prayer thinking, I'm not sure I really want to do this. <laughs> and when he arrives and meets Sambalat and Tobiah, yeah, you can get lost. But we're going to see later he has problems within the camp. And that's got to create consternation as well. And so welcome the Lord, act according to the Lord's will. I have look for L, look for the Lord's glory, pray. The greater, it's been said, greater the obstacle, more glory and overcoming it. I'm going to rephrase that a little bit. The greater the obstacle, the more of God's glory will be revealed in overcoming it.
right, for the believer. And so look for the Lord's glory, that is pray. And then the last of the letters for this acronym wall is to lean into the Lord, rest in him. He will fulfill it. I remember a couple years ago, I decided I couldn't look at the tile anymore around our fireplace in our family room. I said, that's it. So I took out a chisel and I just started busting it out. I said, we're, we're going to deal with this. We're going to replace it. I'm done. So I ripped that all off. And then I realized that the tile that you buy today didn't fit the same size as the one I ripped off. And the problems became far worse and it became even greater. And so I called my dad, who is an unbelievable carpenter. And I said, hey, dad, I think I got a problem. He goes, oh, no worries. Let's look at that. And we'll assess it. And we'll take care of it. That's like our Lord, isn't it? Lord, I, I see this relationship, I see this circumstance, and I don't know what to do. Great. The Lord says, but allow me. Bend your knee before me. Allow me to place my hand on you. In verse 17, notice verse 17 of chapter 2. The problem that Nia identifies is not the task, which seems daunting. The, the problem he identifies is that the, the city lay in ruins. Because the task, oh, that's nothing. Because Nehemiah understands his God and what God is going to do. And don't you love the response? It's as if the people are saying, well, what are you waiting for? Let's do it. Let's go, right? A, a proper theological outlook turns the no way into no problem. <laughs> and that's what we see here. Secondly, we need to depend upon the Lord to deal with our enemies. If we're seeking to serve with the Lord's will, our enemies' attacks, get this, are ultimately an affront to the Lord and his reputation, aren't they? That's what he's gunning for. If Nehemiah wasn't fulfilling the work of the Lord, he would have never encountered Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem. <laughs> he would have been sipping the king's wine in the palace. If God were not my friend, Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, if God were not my friend, Satan would not be my enemy. Nehemiah's response provides guidelines, I would argue, for engaging God's enemies. Praise the Lord, declare allegiance to the Lord, and claim the promises of the Lord. Psalm 91 states, We are safe, those who've made the Lord their refuge. He is in his dwelling place. He is the one who goes before us. And this is why Nehemiah can say, He will prosper us. I have no doubt, because I know my God. I know he goes before, right? And that's what we see here in the text. And then finally, when we're fighting spiritual battles, we cannot tow or lower our spiritual guard, ignore sin, or simply compromise for convenience sake. Peter writes about this. 1 Peter 5, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He's on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. Re it says, resist him, strong in your faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kinds of suffering, like brothers and sisters in Ukraine. So stand fast. Nehemiah understood this. Stand fast. Nehemiah was aware of the problem and the enemy. That's why he had the letters written. Nehemiah acted confidently in the Lord. Look at his response to the enemy. Later, they're going to try to kill him. When they can't destroy him with rhetoric, they'll try to kill him. 
And Nehemiah did not compromise or soft pedal his message. I love his response to Sambalat and Tobiah. He didn't say, well, you know, let's sit down and we'll, we'll just have a, a di diplomatic discussion here. <laughs> Let, let's have a dialogue. Well, I didn't mean we're going to do all the wall. We're thinking about, no, uh-uh. He says, this is what we're called to do. This is who we serve. And you best get out of the way because this doesn't belong to you. <laughs> love it. It's Nehemiah. Nearly 50 years ago, these words were written, and listen to them because they were written to Christians in America. We, as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life-and-death conflict between the spiritual host of wickedness and those who claim the name of the Lord. But do we really believe we're in a life-and-death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whatever or men and women will spend eternity in hell? Do we really believe this? This gentleman writes, with tears we must say it's not there and that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world spirit of the present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be further disastrous if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in all areas of life. The author, Francis Schaeffer, written in a Christian, who is a Christian apologist, written in his book, A Christian View of the Church. <laughs> Nehemiah did not compromise because he understood God's name must be exalted and when the enemy came, as we see here, and we're going to see time and time again in Nehemiah, he did not waver. He did not waver in his allegiance to the Lord, and he did not waver in declaring exactly what God had called him to do. No wonder Nehemiah can say, yeah, this is a good project. We serve a good God, and we will prosper. Father, we come to you in an age that is becoming more and more clear who the enemy is, a culture that is applauding the killing of infants, abortion, who have parades for deviant lifestyles, who seek to undo what you have created in Genesis 1. empires that seek to fulfill their greed and power as we see across this globe. And Lord, in the midst of this, we have an opportunity to say to a world, we serve a God who is a refuge. We serve a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, and he knows the end. Father, may we stand fast. May we not lose hope in the midst of the obstacles. May we cling to you and recognize that you indeed are a good God. We thank you in Jesus' name.